Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week again where we talk about science and skepticism and mostly science tonight. It seems to be a theme. I do want to talk about skepticism more because I think it's an extremely important thing to talk about and I also think it is something that is separate from science and so there have been times definitely where uh, certain scientists have sort of gone astray with the issue of skepticism where uh, I, I think back to the uh, 70s in California where they did a bunch of sort of scientific quote-unquote experiments with things like uh, auras and uh, telekinesis and it was very interesting because there were a lot of places where I was like yes but what about this from a skeptical perspective um, so at some point I will definitely do a skeptical show but uh, anyways I have digressed <laughs> you are listening to evidence-based radio uh, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher. You can also find it via the website, evidencebasedrata.com. That's E-R-R-A-T-A. Okay, so I do want to start tonight with a story that I teased last week but didn't end up getting to talk about. And so I did have a preface for this that I wanted to still do, which is that I first want to talk about the fact that there are a lot of things that I think deserve way more money than we are giving to them. Poverty, environmental degradation, education, those are just sort of the big three that kind of come to mind immediately. And I think that, uh, and we'll talk about this at the end of the show as well, one of the places where I think obviously we could get a lot of money for those things is by trimming the budget for the Department of Defense, for instance. And of course, we could also stop giving tax breaks to people who don't need them and won't use them to make the rest of our lives better. But again, I digress. <laughs> and so again, I just want to be clear that I absolutely think that there are things that deserve real money that is not being given to them. And I know that that is often sort of one of those Republican arguments against funding science, which is, of course, completely disingenuous in their, uh, for coming from them when they fund all sorts of completely and utterly awful things. But I absolutely think that there is a serious need for better and more funding for science. So, that all being said, I can't help but be excited about a new proposal for an American particle collider. So that's actually uh, recently been given the thumbs up as a worthy project by the National Academies of Science. Now, when I was young, I went to this conference. It was for gifted students, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was organized by Johns Hopkins. I don't remember what the program was, but um, I remember it was one of those dorky things that I did was when I was in uh, 
school. And so they had this program and they had talks during that day. And so I dragged my poor mother, who doesn't care about science in the least, uh, to a lecture on the superconducting super collider. It sounded amazing, full of promise for new discoveries, for all sorts of crazy, amazing particle physics, and all sorts of just bright new future type things. And then funding was pulled for the project, and basically the tunnel that once held so much promise is basically now a site of urban spelunking. And, or I guess it's not technically urban, but for, uh, sort of adventurers to go and walk around in the empty, decaying tunnel that is no longer meant for anything. Depressing. But maybe this time we'll actually get a collider. So this new collider would be called the Electron Ion Collider. And it would be in a state-of-the-art facility, which would probe the deepest mysteries of particle physics, which is exactly what we are trying to do here. We can view the EIC and the nuclear physics it will study, quote, as the last frontier of standard model physics. Annie Abrahamian, professor of experimental nuclear physics at the University of Notre Dame, said in a National Academies webinar uh, this past Tuesday, an electron-ion collider would smash a beam of polarized electrons into a beam of polarized protons at high luminosity. So what this means is that the particles in each beam have been have had their uh, spins aligned, and the beams have been compressed to maximize the collision. The collider will act as like an electron microscope to peer into the interior of atoms. And so basically what is hoped is that this will allow experiments to study the structure inside atomic nuclei and protons. And so one of the big questions that physics that physicists have uh, could be solved by this, potentially, obviously. Um, and there's more than one big question, but one of the really big questions is how protons get a nuclear spin in the first place. And the really big one actually is why they weigh more than the sum of their parts. So right now, as far as we can tell, there are, uh, we know what the sort of parts that make up protons are. Uh, those are called quarks, and there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, there's all sorts of different kinds of quarks. Uh, there's sort of up quarks and down quarks and uh, strange quarks, and there's all sorts of quarks, and some of them have interesting and odd names. And uh, so yeah, but when you put them all together, they actually weigh more than they would as individuals. And that's crazy, and we don't understand it. <laughs> and so we really need these more powerful, more advanced uh, accelerators in order to hopefully help us figure out why that is. Now, two labs are currently vying for the ability to build the collider. The Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, uh, which is at Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York, and so they already have a ring that 
that accelerates polarized protons, so they would just need to add an electron ring. Now, the other contender is the Thomas Jefferson National Accelerator Facility in Virginia, and they have an electron accelerator and so would only need the proton ring. And so right now, the two labs are actually working together um, and awaiting further developments. Now, of course, as with the superconducting supercollider, we will have to wait and see whether or not this new collider will be built. Right now, a nuclear facility is being built at Michigan State University by the Department of Energy. And so that is currently at a budget of $730 million. Uh, so the collider will most likely have to wait until that project reaches completion. And we'll be talking a lot about budgets tonight. Uh, well, at least in a couple, in at least a couple more, uh, stories. And, uh, again, I would just like to emphasize how little we spend on science versus how much we spend on uh, both military aggrandizement that we don't need, uh, especially equipment we don't need that basically is only being created in order to prop up the military industrial complex and also corporate welfare. And so tonight we can combine my two favorite things, science and railing against capitalism. Hooray! <laughs> Um, but I will try and keep that to a limit, if at all possible. Uh, I do do my best. Okay, so hopefully this will be built and America's nuclear physicists are very excited, <laughs> as am I, even though I don't necessarily understand the really high level uh, physics that is going on here. I am pretty good at at conceptualizing at least the basics. Um, as Richard Fetterman always said, uh, if you think that you understand uh, particle physics, then you clearly don't. Um, and so that is definitely something that we are trying to get better about because there's a lot of weird things that we just don't know why they happen yet. And we really just need to continue to create better and uh, more precise um, instruments in order to sort of probe those depths. And again, um, the importance of basic science like this really can't be overestimated. Uh, this is another perennial favorite of Congress, for instance, is to basically say, well, you know, we're funding all of these weird projects in basic science and what have they given to us for, uh, realistic results. But of course, the problem is, is that you never know what will give you realistic results. So that is the problem is that anything could lead to a breakthrough uh, that will lead us to new technologies that could actually be helpful in the real world. But we can't know and we can't find them if we don't do that basic research. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, now, I've been trying to branch out. I tried really hard tonight um, to this week to gather stories that uh, were about other things other than uh, just anthropology, archaeology, uh, paleontology. But um, there were just a couple of things in the realm of sort of 
anthropology, archaeology that I, I really wanted to talk about because they're really interesting. Um, and so we're going to do that and then we'll talk about some other things, I promise. <laughs> um, I'm not trying to turn this into just a just an archaeology uh, show. I mean, I could, I could do that very easily, but I think that it's more, uh, <laughs> it's more useful to talk about a wide range of things. And so I am working on that, I promise. <laughs> so first of all, a pair of researchers have recently proposed an answer to the question that has been actually plaguing me personally for years as well, uh, which is basically how did Homo sapiens manage to outcompete all other members of our genus? So there were a bunch of species of Homo. There was Homo erectus. Uh, there was Homo um, uh, nalendi, and those were sort of uh, quote unquote more primitive versions of Homo. Uh, and then there was uh, Homo uh, neanderthalis, uh, the Neanderthals. Uh, there was Homo um, Denisovian, which is the, um, or Denisonovian, I think is how you pronounce it that way. And those are the Denisovans who are really mysterious. We don't understand much about them at all. Um, but we know a fair amount about the Neanderthals, and they were pretty smart. They had culture. They painted. They cooked food. They did everything pretty much we did, but they still died out. And so what this pair suggests is that the fact that homo, homo sapiens are considered quote unquote generalist specialists gave them an advantage over other members of the genus who were more adapted to specific types of environments. So basically, we're really good at being generalists. That's our specialty is not having a specialty. <laughs> A traditional ecological dichotomy exists between generalists who can make use of a variety of different sources and inhabit a variety of environmental conditions and specialists who have a limited diet and narrow environmental toler tolerance, says Roberts. Sorry, this is Patrick Roberts from the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History and Brian Stewart from the University of Michigan. And so Roberts goes on to say, however, <laughs> Homo sapiens furnish evidence for specialist populations, such as mountain rainforest foragers or paleoarctic mammoth hunters, existing within what is traditionally defined as a generalist species. Now, there is some evidence that other members of the Homo family simply diminished. Um, so one of the main things that we can sort of tell from the record potentially, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, is that, you know, sometimes species just don't make it. And so it's not that we did anything to uh, further their extinction. They just simply didn't make it. It was just something changed in the environment they were uh, able to handle and then they were no longer able to live in that environment and they weren't able to adapt to the new conditions. But the two uh, actually believe that the expansion of Homo sapiens into the far-flung reaches of the world is a big part of why we succeeded. And so what they did was they reviewed archaeological studies that span between 300,000 and 12,000 years ago, 
And basically what they were looking for was comparisons of human remains with their environments. And so what they found was that other species, even the relatively comparable Neanderthals, didn't stray much from the easiest of climates, such as warm forests or semi-fertile grasslands. On the other hand, Homo sapiens, by as early as 45,000 years ago, were already moving into what might be considered semi-inhospitable environments, so arid environments that were uh, not as fertile as those grasslands, into colder regions, uh, and other sort of niche environments that aren't as easy to live in. Now, of course, as with much in nature, the answer is probably multifaceted. There's no one thing that made us successful. There's no one thing that made all of the other species of Homo go extinct. Now, not only are there probably several factors that led to the extinction of those other members, there is also, and I want to be clear about this because it's important to to, you know, be very clear about these sorts of things. There is a difficulty in drawing conclusions based on the fact that our fossil record from this period of time is extremely sparse. And so that is something that has to be acknowledged because it's it is a fact and it's important to not try and hide the fact that we are making assumptions based on a pretty scarce set of uh, data points. And so unfortunately, part of the problem with early hominids, it's they didn't live in places that fossilized easily. So those, you know, grasslands and especially those warm forests, not great for uh, fossil preservation at all. And so it's much more likely to find uh, remains in those occasionally uh, inhospitable places. And so luckily, sort of, uh, I guess, it's not really the word I'm looking for, but, you know, the climate in, uh, you know, in Africa and in um, also in Europe and Asia has changed. So some of those places that used to be forest lands, they, uh, you know, became sort of more inhospitable. They became deserts. And so they became des deserts in a time period where it became more um, realistic that those remains that were under the ground would become fossils. So we do have fossils that would have been from those environments, and we can find the evidence of those environments with those fossils. But again, they are much less likely to be in that kind of um, environment and fossilize well. So there's some things that we just can't know that we just have to sort of conjecture about because we don't have a full record. Uh, we never have a full record of any species that is no longer uh, here or even the ancestors of species that are still here on the planet. And that's just a fact and it's important to remember that. But it doesn't mean that we can't make educated guesses based on the information we have. It just means that if we find more information later, we might have to change our understanding, which is great because that's the whole point of science is to continually find new and different things that are uh, very important. Um, I'm sorry, that, you know, advance your understanding of the way that science works. Okay. Um, so let us move on.
there is another one, another story that I needed to get to, which I just couldn't resist again. I'm sorry. (laughs) But this is the discovery of the remains of burnt bread that pushes back the uh, first instance of bread making back 4,000 years before agriculture uh, into what is known as the Epipaleolithic. So this is the period of time between the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. And so again, this is 4,000 years earlier than we once thought it might be. So um, Amaya Aranz Otegui, an archaeobotanist from the University of Copenhagen, found the charred remains of breadcrumbs while excavating a cooking pit created by the Natufians. Uh, They were a hunter-gatherer tribe in what is now Jordan. They looked like what we find in our toasters, she says. Of course, except no one ever heard of people making bread so early in human history. I could tell they were processed plants, Aranz Otegui said, but I didn't really know what they were. Now, of course, these people were known as hunters. The pit was also filled with the bones of gazelles, sheep, and hares. Uh, But the remains of bread came as quite a surprise. Aranz Otegui took the remains to her colleague, Lara Gonzalez Caratero, at the University College London Institute of Archaeology. And her specialty is actually identifying prehistoric remains of food uh, and especially bread. And what's really exciting about this is that it potentially flips and almost certainly does flip the assumed timeline between farming and baking. So it had once been assumed that our ancestors would have settled down and began raising cereal crops and then they would have figured out other ways to use them besides just eating the cereal itself. Uh, so learning how to uh, grind them into flour and then making bread. Finding bread, bread in this epipaleolithic site was the last thing we expected, says Orang Otegu. We used to think that the first bread appeared during the Neolithic times, when people started to cultivate cereal, but now it seems they learned to make bread earlier. Now, of course, having this evidence, it begins to make sense. So, why would you grow grains if you didn't know how to make them into tasty and delicious foods? So, it makes sense that you would invest in crops that you already knew how to use properly. And so what we think or what the they're thinking is now is that prior to the advent of settled agriculture, bread making would have been a rare treat um, because it really is an intensive process. There's a lot of prep work involved. In order to create bread, you need to first remove the husks, grind the cereals, knead the dough, let it rise, knead the dough again, as you know, and, and bake it. And this will, this might not seem like a terrible process for sedentary people, but again, these were nomadic peoples. It tells us that our ancestors were smart people who knew how to use their environment well, noted and- Andreas Heiss, an archaeologist at the Austrian Academy of Science, um, who was not directly involved in the project. 
It also tells us that processing food is a much more basic technique in human history than we thought, maybe as old as hunting and gathering. Now, further analysis of the remains show that the flour was made from both einkorn or wild wheat and the roots of club rush tubers. And uh, apparently club rush tubers and other uh, rush tubers like this is a lost source of food for people. So I was kind of looking up um, to see what club rush tubers looked like. And I stumbled upon a uh, website about a survivalist who said, you know, if you're trying to get some good food in you, we sh you should look for these tubers and you can uh, basically dig the tubers out and prepare them and make yummy food. Um, I'm not going to really rush out and look for them anywhere uh, soon, but I do think it's really interesting some of these things that people used to eat that we could still potentially eat, but we don't anymore. Um, and so basically, combining these two things allowed the ancient bakers to make a pliable elastic dough that could be pressed onto the walls of a fireplace pit. So basically, they were making uh, naan, <laughs> uh, the way they were making bread the way you would do it in a tandoori oven. Uh, there were also traces of barley and oats found in the remains. Uh, and so the Natufians were actually quite adept at cooking. They used spices and condiments, particularly mustard seeds. We found a lot of wild mustard seeds, but not in the bread. But not in the bread, but in the overall assemblage, said Gonzalez Caratero. Though they haven't found any bread with seeds yet, they've actually only analyzed 25 of around 625 crumbs, and so they may yet find some. The seeds have a very particular taste, so why not use them? Aran's Otegui posited. Now, of course, to answer what I hope is your burning question, <laughs> uh, Aran's Otegui has been gathering einkorn seed and peeling and grinding the tubers and hopes to pair with a chef to recreate uh, a modern version of the bread. Now, if I see an update, I will let you know um, because I really want to know what it tastes like. It sounds sounds pretty good. I mean, I think that, you know, having that sort of starchy tuber combined with the wheat would probably be pretty yummy. Um, and bread is one of my favorite things. So I'm always willing to try any kind of bread. <laughs> and so um, the history of sort of cooking and uh, making things that you drink and eat is really, really fascinating. Uh, so if you want to know more uh, and want some just sort of quick doses from sort of a range of time periods, the British Museum's YouTube page did a recent series on basically, uh, you know, the science of cooking and uh, the historic looking historically at cooking. And so um, if you go to the British Museum's YouTube page, you can find that series. I will um, put a link to it on the Facebook page as well um, this evening so that you can get to it there. Okay, so we are going to take a break and then we are going to move on from archaeology to other things. So hang on for just a minute. 
today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash STDs often have no symptoms, but if left untreated, they can lead to serious health problems, especially for young women. Every year in the U.S., about 24,000 women become infertile from untreated STDs, which means they may never be able to have kids. It's important to get tested regularly. All STDs are treatable. Many are curable. GYT, get yourself tested. Go to GYTnow.org to find a testing center near you. A message from CDC. Okay, we are back. And actually, before we move on, I do want to mention that an astute caller uh, called in to say that they had heard about the fact that you actually can find some Neanderthal DNA in the human genome. And that is absolutely correct. So one of the things that we did was that we clearly interbred with other members of the species um, or other species in our genus. And so you can actually find echoes of not only Neanderthals, but some people have uh, a bit of Denisovian in them, especially people who live in the Himalayas. I talked about that recently, actually. One of the genes that helps them live in the Himalayas where it's really uh, there's not as much oxygen and it's harder to uh, actually get energy from food. One of those comes from the Denisovians. And there's also another marker that we think comes from a genus, I'm sorry, a species of the genus that we haven't yet even discovered. So again, there's so much out there that we don't know. And hopefully we'll just continue to find things uh, because otherwise what do we do? <laughs> Finding new things is the best. Okay. So we are moving on now. And uh, this is really interesting. There has basically been the discovery of a new geometric shape. So you've probably heard about this, uh, but I did want to talk about it because I think it's really interesting just in case you have it. And so uh, this is the scutoid. 
And basically, the new form was discovered by studying epithelial cells. Those are the basic cells uh, that create an embryo, and then they become our skin and the lining of our organs and blood vessels. So they're really important. And what they do is they create these sheets of cells like your skin. And so they have to be really well packed together and they also have to be really flexible. And so this shape, these shapes uh, actually allow for extremely efficient packing organization and allow for the twisting that occurs to cells and cell layers, especially as a person develops uh, in the embryonic stage and then also when we move. Now, initial models of the development of embryos uh, when they first started looking into figuring this out, they used sort of bottle or column-shaped cells, but this didn't produce the best results. They found that when they ran the computer models, it didn't really work. Um, and so basically what was suggested is that something more complex was required in order to fulfill this set of needs for the cells to be able to uh, properly sort of squish together without any kind of um, space in between them because that's what you really need. And so what they did was they basically decided to run some computer simulations to extrapolate what shape would be most efficient at staying in contact in both flat and curved layers. So the algorithm's suggested model was a prismatoid of sorts. And so a prismatoid is basically a shape where you have on one end, uh, or on the two ends, you have um, uh, geometric shapes like a hexagon, and then they're connected by the points of the um, polyhedron. I think it's polyhedron. I'm sorry if I'm misremembering the name. Um, geometry is not something that I um, have studied for a while, but, you know, the basics come back hopefully. And so what they found was that the proposed model consisted of a cell with a pentagon shape on one end and a hexagon shape on the other. So it's not a uh, perfectly aligned uh, symmetrical shape. Now, because the ends have that uneven number of points, the shape needed to have a section uh, that sort of figured out how to make that work. And so what happens is that two of the planes come together in a sort of triangle. And so that allows you then to connect the five-pointed side with the six-pointed side uh, with basically a plane that is a triangle that comes together into a point and then, uh, you know, moves from the six-pointed to the five-pointed. It's hard to visualize. I will definitely put a link so that you can see what I'm talking about. But um, so there are two different forms of this shape that sort of come together in order to produce the best model for densely packed but highly flexible layers of cells. So once they had those computer models, they then examined actual cells from fruit fly salivary glands, as well as cells from zebrafish. And so using a combination of microscopy and computer imaging, they were able to find that the, sh the epithelial cells actually did have this scutoid shape. Now, Luis 
Escudero, a developmental biologist at the University of Seville and a co-author of the paper, told Gizmodo that at first he was having a really hard time visualizing it just like you are probably doing and which I did until I saw um, someone actually create the um, shape. And so what he did was he actually went home and created it out of clay with his daughter. And then he was able to kind of conceptualize it, which I think is a really sweet um, part of this. And so they consulted with mathematicians and found that the scutoid is actually a shape that is new to math and geometry. Officially, the shape is named after the scutellum of a beetle. That's part of the thorax, which looks similar in a top-down view. It has that sort of triangle that goes into a line to create kind of a filled-in Y. However, Clara Grimm, a mathematician also at the University of Seville, told Matt Parker of the uh, really excellent YouTube channel Stand Up Maths uh, that originally the way that they were talking about it was that, uh, you know, um, Luis Escudero, uh, Escudero in the Latin is Escudo. And so they originally were calling it uh, Escutoids. And eventually that became Scutoids based on uh, more formal connection to the Beatles. Uh, but I just thought that was a really interesting little tidbit that people aren't talking about as much that, you know, here is this uh, researcher working on this and uh, his name is almost perfectly linked to the uh, thing that he is creating. And I just thought that was really cool. Um, and so, yeah, Javier Busetta, uh, systems biologist, biologist at Lehigh University and a co-author uh, <laughs> stated, you normally don't have the opportunity in your life to name something that will hopefully be there forever. It's not going to be the circle or the square, but we have been able to name a new shape. And that's so cool. And so, uh, you know, it's never been seen in nature before. And it's very exciting even though it is a little esoteric. It, it is exciting. <laughs> I swear. Um, okay, so let's move on to a different aspect of biology. So new research suggests that being even a little bit dehydrated can actually impair your cognitive function. So it's well known, obviously, that being severely dehydrated can make you hallucinate, make cognitive functions extremely difficult, you know, you can die from dehydration, obviously. But new research suggests that even a moderate or slight bit of dehydration even might put you on the road to becoming unable to concentrate or function properly. So researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology report that after statistical analyses of data from multiple peer-reviewed papers on the effects of dehydration on cognitive abilities, uh, they found that it suggests that functions like attention, coordination, and complex problem solving um, actually function, uh, sorry, suffer quite a bit. Now, other activities aren't so affected. So reading, reaction time, things like that, uh, sort of reflex action, those don't seem to be affected very much. It's just these sort of higher order um, cognitive functions like attention, uh, problem solving, that sort of thing. The simplest reaction 
the simplest reaction time tasks were least impacted, even as dehydration got worse. But tasks that require attention were quite impacted, said Mindy Millard Stafford, a professor in Georgia Tech's School of Biological Sciences. And so basically what they found that attention-based repetitive tasks were the worst affected by a lack of hydration. So they tried people doing things like basically punching a series of buttons in a pattern and the more dehydrated they got, the more likely they were to make mistakes. And so of course, even though you might not be just pushing buttons in your everyday life, you do often do things like that. Maintaining focus in a long meeting, driving a car, a monotonous job in a hot factory that requires you to stay alert are some of them uh, things that are affected in the real world by this, said Millard Stafford, uh, who was the study's principal investigator. Higher order functions like doing math or applying logic also drop off. And so uh, Millard Stafford and her colleague Matthew Whitbrot a former graduate research assistant at Georgia Tech and now a postdoctoral researcher at Emory University, first looked at a pool of 6,591 relevant studies, and then uh, they were able to refine that down to 33 papers that were comparable enough to conduct a metadata analysis. And what they found was that more severe impairment began around the 2% mark of lost body mass due to dehydration. This actually makes sense because this is also the point at which physical signs of dehydration start to become apparent. There's already a lot of quantitative documentation that if you lose 2% in water, it affects physical abilities like muscle endurance or sports tasks, and your ability to regulate your body temperature, said Millard Stafford, uh, who is also a past president of the American College of Sports Medicine. We wanted to see if that was similar for cognitive function. And it turns out it is. It can also happen fast, especially if you are exerting yourself in hot weather for instance, like we've been experiencing and will continue to experience. If you weigh 200 pounds and you go work out for a few hours, and that can include doing lawn work or something like that, you drop four pounds, and that is 2% body mass, Millard Stafford said. And it can happen fast again, with an, with an otter, bleh, with an Sorry, with an hour of moderately intense activity with a temperature in the mid 80s and moderate humidity, it is not uncommon to lose a little over two pounds of water. Now, you'll really start to feel the effects of dehydration around the four or five percent mark, wherein you will actually start to feel unwell. Um, and so you should definitely not get to that point if at all possible. Now, one of the a couple of things that they warn about is that, for instance, older people are at greater risk of dehydration because uh, as you grow older, your sense of thirst can actually decrease or be lost and your kidneys age along with the rest of you. So they're less able to concentrate fluid and thus your body is less able to retain fluid overall. Um, and so basically you have to be really careful. Also, fat reserves limit your ability to retain fluids. So if you're fat, 
like I am, <laughs> you should also be more careful. And I actually um, am very uh, cognizant of my uh, water intake. I always have a bottle of water with me, uh, even if it's sort of, I have a large, you know, uh, steel um, water bottle. And sometimes I'm like, why am I carrying this around? But I know that it's important to stay hydrated. Now, of course, all that being said, too much water can be just as dangerous as dehydration. People die every year from what's called hyponutremia. Um, and so what that is, is basically when you drink too much water, the water actually dilutes your blood and causes the brain to swell due to an imbalance in electrolytes. So try to stay hydrated, but don't attempt to drink large amounts of water all at once. Now, if you've been sweating, for instance, what you can do is add a pinch of salt to the water to help your body retain that fluid. Because if you don't have any salts in your system, you're just going to flush that water right through you and it's not going to help you at all. Now, um, you won't taste it, but it will make that hydration actually effective. Um, when I used to work out uh, more... Uh, with more intensity a couple of years ago, I always did that. I always put a pinch of salt in the water afterwards because you are losing salt as you uh, sweat and you need those salts for the proper regulation of your uh, systems. And so even though it may sound weird to put a pinch of salt in your water, it really does help, especially if you're out doing yard work in a hot day under the sun or you've been cleaning out your garage that isn't air conditioned, it's really important to make sure that you are getting proper hydration so that you don't have any issues. Okay. <laughs> I feel kind of like a mom at the moment. Make sure you drink enough water, Timmy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let us move on to what I think might actually be a piece of good news. Um, coming from the current regime i'm i'm conflicted about this because I, I don't know how to feel about something that doesn't sound awful uh so the republican president has finally appointed someone to be the white house science advisor uh this is meteorologist kelvin drogemeyer now if confirmed he will end the 19 month period in which the post has been empty this is the longest time since the post was created Dragemeyer actually seems like a reasonable pick. I am as shocked as any of you. <laughs> he is actually an expert in extreme weather events and has served on the faculty at the University of Oklahoma in Norman for 33 years. He's also served both, both as a university administrator and as vice chair of the governing board of the United States National Science Foundation. Now, his official title will be Director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, but this is basically the role that is usually uh, seen as the president's science advisor. Now, Dragemeyer, again, is a climate scientist who clearly understands global warming. I'm wondering if maybe uh, the president didn't realize that someone who studies extreme weather uh, would actually believe in global warming. Maybe he thought that... Uh, 
he just believed in extreme weather? I don't know. Uh, he, he co-authored an op-ed in 2017, which pointed out that our emphasis on scientific research and advancement is what led to some of the greatest triumphs of the 20th century, and that we should be acutely aware of the dangers that our 40-year low in government funding for basic scientific research puts the U.S. in a position to be left behind by other countries. Um, and so the nation scientists actually seem relieved. Dr. Drogermeyer is an extreme weather expert, a knowledge base that is becoming more and more important with climate change, loading the dice as extreme weather becomes more prevalent, costly, and deadly, wrote Michael Halpern, the deputy director for the, science, for the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Now, of course, there is no guarantee that the president will actually listen to Mr. Drogemeyer, but hopefully, and it is just, it's, it is a refreshing change of pace to have someone who is actually qualified for the job that he's being nominated for in this administration. Ooh, I, I really don't know what to do with this. It's, it's a weird feeling. <laughs> Um, I'm sure there's some sort of awful skeleton in his closet that will come up and I will no longer be happy. But for the moment, I'm keeping this feeling of weird, vague happiness that this person actually seems like he understands the job that he is being uh, nominated for. Okay, so uh, I think we will probably just have time to talk about one more thing. And that is kind of a capstone. Uh, the, the first story and this story kind of, you know, uh, sort of cap off this theme that I have been talking about, which is, of course, funding and scientific progress. So let's talk about the James Webb Telescope. Um, you've probably heard breathless stories about how the telescope has been again delayed and about how much the cost of it has overrun, that the project is just crazily over budget. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Now, these things are technically true, but there are good reasons for why, uh, especially why the cost has ballooned over the years. Now, the estimated costs for the telescope, uh, which will, by the way, replace the Hubble telescope, have been projected as low from the beginning. Now, there have indeed been some real delays that were caused by human error. Uh, Northrop Grunman, the company spearheading much of the construction, has had a series of accidents that have delayed production. Uh, they have had people uh, using the wrong solvent. Uh, someone uh, used the wrong uh, charge in an experiment. It just it, there, there have been human errors. Absolutely. Cannot deny that. However... <laughs> The real problem is baked into the whole concept of the James Webb. It's so ambitious that we haven't been able to fully conceive of it from the beginning. There was no one on the planet who knew how to build JWST when they started. That information didn't exist. Jim Muncie, founder of Polyspace, a space policy consulting agency, told The Verge. 
They tried coming up with a good faith estimate for cost, but you really don't know how much it's going to cost because you haven't done it before. Now, one of the incredibly important facts um, about this that makes it really important that we spend the money and the time to make it right is that once the James Webb is deployed, we will not be able to service it. Hubble, of course, has famously been visited and repaired by astronauts in famous spacewalks where they repaired the uh, incorrectly ground tel- um, incorrectly ground mirror and actually, you know, made the Hubble usable. Um, um, but the web will be too far out in space, um, especially with our reduced capacities in NASA um, we just will not be able to send even uh, sort of unmanned rovers out there. Um, it's just, it's going to be too far out in space and it needs to be out there in order to actually have the ability to do all of the things that it needs to do. And so we have one chance at it. And if we screw it up, then all of those billions of dollars are literally just wasted. Um, and as much as I love NASA and as much as they have been knocking it out of the park lately um, in the last couple of decades, they have had some major, major effort, major, major uh, problems in the past. Uh, the the Mars, uh, original Mars uh, Explorer, uh, the... Um, incredibly unfortunate Challenger incident, um, and some other things that were basic dumb mistakes. So we have got to get this right. Um, and also part of the problem is simply the fact that the people making the decisions on what kind of telescope we need, they're not the kind of people who understand costs. They are scientists and engineers. They don't know how much a telescope is going to cost. (laughs) Also, we needed to create a bunch of technologies just to be able to actually create the telescope. In fact, up to 10 new technologies had to be created before we could even start working on it. And again, I would like to remind you that the DoD has gone at least $100 billion over budget just on the F-35 fighter alone. That is just one project, and I could go into great detail about how the DoD wastes money all the time. However, I need to wrap things up for tonight. Uh, please stay tuned to Civil Politics. I will be hosting with uh, Sue Timberlake, and we will have a special guest. Um, and so, yes, it is going to be... Um, It is going to be Lindsay Sabadosa. Uh, She is running for the seat vacated by the unfortunate passing away of Peter Koka. So please do stay tuned for that. Um, And you have been listening to, and I hope you will continue to listen to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro, and thank you for listening.